Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. It is the 8th of July and in the studio we have Rob and... I'd won this week. Just the two of us. Two of us this week. Jess is taking a little bit of a break this week. How have you been this week, Edwin? Look, this week's been an interesting week for everyone and for Victorians especially. Uh, so I don't think I'll necessarily go into my spiel of what wacky weirdness I've been up to. Uh, I, I think it's just been like just an acknowledgement of like this has been one of those weird, hazy weeks amongst COVID where things start to kind of hit, the, the proverbial hits the fan and we're all just kind of scrabbling at the walls trying to reevaluate and fix ourselves up. So I've been lucky. I haven't been in an area that's been too affected, but um, it's, it's just been very much in the Australian consciousness and, or at least in everyone's conscious at the forefront, forefront of it. Yeah, what's well, interesting is I've, I've been one of the suburbs, the postcodes that's been, been put on lockdown. And it's just interesting the effect that it has on mental health, like with everyone that I'm living with, like the moment that it was announced that we were going into lockdown, we all sort of like ran into someone's room and just chatted about it. And you could just feel the energy instantly kind of sapping from all of us. And it's just interesting because I wasn't anticipating to have such uh, an effect on energy levels and it's really persisted throughout the entire week and it's just yeah because you, when you're looking forward at the start it was you know you're sort of hoping it only be three four months and then now it's kind of the second wave and I would argue it's actually looking worse because it's all community transmission as opposed to just return travelers um, the impact that it's had on energy levels is really substantial um, so yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to what to, to say with that, but it's just something to I guess reflect on and keep a mind of. I guess particularly perhaps in your position, I wouldn't being someone who's not in a lockdown suburb yet. I would say because mm. like it might spread. But um, I've had friends sort of like checking in here and there, just checking it's all going okay. Because yeah, it's definitely it's not an easy easy thing to process. Yeah, I definitely think it is going to be something that like give someone you know in that area a call in <laughs> you know maybe a video conference check on them uh it, it it could become especially what we've seen the actions and movements and we won't get into it too much right now but that we've seen over the over this weekend specifically <clears throat> um it's just so divisive with half of victoria kind of in lockdown half of victoria not and so it's just being super conscious about kind of getting through it together as a community <laughs> If that makes sense, um, and so I, I suppose that's kind of been the that's been the focus of this week. There's also been a few, you know, pieces of political news. We had that gobsmacking two hundred seventy billion dollars um, funding in you know over a decade funding in military spending that Scott Morrison Scott Morrison has announced. We also had the um, by election. So there's just been I don't know. It has been one of those weeks. I just feel that it's it's been kind of a bit of a haze. Mm. It's been actually a very eventful week. Mm. But I guess I'm trying to trying to summarise. Well, we've actually got this week is a really exciting week because it's NATO. Yes, 
This week is like, I'm hoping it makes up for last week. (laughs) And so what was the theme for this year, Ibrahim? So the theme for NADOC week this year is always was, always will be. And of course, National NADOC Week actually uh, is usually in the first week of July. Um, but this week, it'll actually like celebrations will be officially held in 2020 from the 8th to the 15th of November. So I suppose what 3CR has done, because we were having a big chat about this with um, our station, and 3CR thinks it's really important, you know, we recognize it of its usual occurrence and as the first week of July. Um, but it's kind of interesting this year because we kind of get two NADOCs. <laughs> <laughs> for the second one the 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 in-person celebrations will be 8 to the 15th of november so yeah happy i mean yay to nadoc week there's going to be so many cool things happening i suppose just generally mm-hmm. um which I'm, I'm checking out like now on the website and everyone can head to this to you know get involved and see what events are coming up or just also looking at like what um different first nations uh speakers and accounts and activists are also doing around this week's pretty exciting yeah absolutely and so from the show today we've got a lot of many of people who are sort of Indigenous and First Nations people sharing their music, sharing their stories. Um, so it should be a really great show. So what have you got for us today, Ibwin? Yeah, so um, today I spoke to the chairperson of the Darable Yerrigan uh, Health Service in Western Australia, so a little bit far from home for us. Uh, but I talked to their CEO, Francine Eads, to discuss the role of um, Aboriginal-led health communities and facilities in the response to COVID-19 and this was actually uh, I kind of got really inspired for this interview through an Australia the Australian Institute which had a really great panel of Aboriginal elders and leaders and health experts discussing just that the Aboriginal-led health response to COVID-19 and it's been a huge success um up until now and and discussing how they've implemented strategies and kept communities aware and uh, of the you know developments and the risks and all those sorts of things um so yeah i thought it'd be a really lovely one also fitting in with today's kind of topic of always was always will be it's just a great reminder that like these um first nations knowledge-based systems and approaches to health and stuff like that which go back so far can be brought also into the modern day context facing something you know which which is unprecedented, as Sco- Scotty from marketing likes to remind us. Mm-hmm. Well, we've actually, um, on that kind of point of the sort of past knowledge in today's in today sort of contemporary society, we're uh, going to be replaying an interview we did earlier this year with Crystal De Napoli, who is an Indigenous astronomer. Um, and she, we absolutely loved the interview earlier this year, and she spoke a lot about stories that have been used in Indigenous astronomy to help uh, communities understand how to properly care for the landscape and how that's now being translated in the contemporary society, particularly with the effects of climate change and shifting climatic patterns. How do we perhaps remember those stories and incorporate them in today's sort of practices for caring for the land, but also how they're starting to change with sort of as the climate changes as well. Um, but for this week as well, I've got an interview with Andrew Farrell, who's a Indigenous queer scholar at Macquarie University. So we'll be speaking about his sort of understanding of his intersectional identity and his sort of uh, sort of journey towards understanding that and unpacking that. And now he's part of this really great research uh, unit at Macquarie University. And it's one of the only units in the world that looks at the intersection of queer First Nations people. Um, So that should be a really exciting interview later today. In 2020, 3CR is delivering our Beyond the Bars project differently. 
We've been speaking to the Indigenous men and women in Victorian prisons over the phone and we'll bring you those chats throughout the week of Monday, July the 6th to Friday, July the 10th. You can also catch up on the audio from the project online at 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. We want to see our men and women out of the prison system, but while they're still there, we will give them a voice through Beyond the Bars. Make sure you listen in. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. CR Community Radio, 855 AM.
love for the boys outrageous In love with the pointless mateship join Together no choice outweighs the joints That I have enjoyed with Stacey's Sticky and moist and lazy What could be destroyed but changes No went to the noise that makes Of course such elegance forms with age Develop and mold Together we hold Forever rejoiced in nature One heavenly soul as heavy as gold To benefit all creation Our energies mold To get us to pulse We melt aboard the spaceship We'll never get old But ever uphold This delicate cult we've made Until we've all withered away And the world we live in Just isn't the same Until all the misery fades The swirls of shit In a glistening haze Until all the prisoners caged Into what the prison Just isn't the way Until every day Is filled with the praise Of what we have built to decay Until every piece is sustained And shits are taken upon its remains Until every kid and his mates Goes out on a mission And isn't afraid Until every bit of a breaks Until all your shit is in flames Whatever it takes Be there for your mates Remember We're one and the same you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And up next, we have an interview with Andrew Farrell. So Andrew is an Indigenous Early Career Academic Fellow in the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Andrew is a Wadi Wadi descendant from the Jurindja Aboriginal community on the south coast of New South Wales. Andrew's multidisciplinary research focuses on Aboriginal LGBTIQ gender and sexualities, media and online studies. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to ask first, what drew you into the the field of queer Indigenous research and studies? I think that that can be answered through basically my journey through undergraduate into the PhD. So in my undergraduate studies, I undertook creative arts and moved into Indigenous studies with electives in history and gender and sexuality studies. And through that, I became really curious about the intersections between those respective fields and where I could position myself as a queer Indigenous person within them. So I undertook my honours year doing a thesis focused on gender diversity in Indigenous cultures focusing here in Australia. And also in 2015, there was a great symposium organised by my current supervisor, Professor Broman Carson, called Cultured Queer, Queer and Culture. I also organised that as well. And that was a symposium that invited in international speakers who are experts in the field of Indigenous queer studies or queer Indigenous studies, however you want to phrase that. But particularly my worldview really changed and moved towards queer Indigenous studies through those events as well as meeting and connecting and learning from my own networks of queer Indigenous mob across the country, particularly sister girls and brother boys and what the trans and gender diverse experiences were of Indigenous peoples across our country. And I felt a growing sense of responsibility towards giving that representation um, within my own space. And so from that time since you started uh, researching it and exploring it in your undergraduate studies, to where you are now. How has the field of uh, queer Indigenous studies evolved during that time? Right, so queer Indigenous studies, as I perceive it, you know, in Australia, in some way mirrors the evolution of queer Indigenous studies in the US and Canada, which developed on the queer and Indigenous margins of universities, particularly arts and humanities departments across the US and Canada and largely on behalf of LGBTIQ plus and two-spirit identified Indigenous people across the US and Canada. And here locally, it has 
much like the US grown out of the clear absence of Indigenous queer critique in both and presence in Indigenous and gender and sexuality studies. And just to speak a little bit about kind of recent developments, I think that, you know, the space has been growing for some time now, but in Australia within the last, say, five years, there has been a proliferation of representations of LGBTIQ plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in mainstream media. And I think that that work as well as, you know, groups which have been actively um, transforming through their activism through the 80s and 90s have been challenging research institutions and pushing them to respond to the ongoing calls for the need for data and research that acknowledges the complex intersections of identities, including that of Indigenous LGBTIQ peoples. And I think what is really important for me, um, working within the train of this emerging field, is that this field is growing as well out of the kind of flexible solidarities and support systems that are explicitly self-determined by Indigenous and queer academics and our allies within the space. So I think that kind of summarises a very complex genesis of queer Indigenous studies in Australia, but of course um, there is a lot more to that story. Mm. You've also been quite open about your your upbringing and your your journey towards understanding your own identity, particularly with the the intersection of your ties to the Dringer community as well as the, the queer community. What was it like trying to understand your identity? Mm. So I kind of still am working through those complexities, but in a recent article that you can find in Archer magazine online, I did highlight the replication of unequal power relations between queer and non-queer Indigenous peoples, um, highlighting fractures within of oppressed groups. And through that, I've kind of explored through a queer Indigenous lens, my own as a queer and Indigenous person, to locate colonisation as an ongoing challenge to our social and cultural cohesion. And by identifying the historical and ongoing assimilation of Indigenous people through imposed norm systems such as heterosexism and homophobia, I could start to see that my identity and the kind of unpacking of that and building a, building a critique upon it, I could articulate my position. So I've always kind of relied on aspects of my own experience to inform what I do. And for me, opening up and sharing that has been a really important healing process to help clarify for myself. And I've noted... I've noted in my work that growing up, you know, feeling insecure about cultural identity was particularly around facing the limitations to how I could identify at a personal level. And when I came to the point of realisation that I was different, I saw all the ways that I didn't belong. And this was also the case for my newfound kind of space in the LGBTIQ community. While fostering my sexual and gender differences, it too had its limitations there I found varied levels of acceptance, um, racism, fetishization, and ultimately exhaustion. And I saw that this phenomena wasn't just happening to me, it was also happening to other queer Indigenous peoples. So I think it's definitely important to share 
those experiences in order to connect and to find a place for these complex intersections of identity. And for me personally, I have now settled in my own small social cultural space made up of allies of Indigenous, non-Indigenous, queer and non-queer networks, both nationally and abroad and abroad. And I'm grateful to have those networks which support and sustain both aspects of my identity. But I do still think that there is a lot of work to be done in those complex terrains. So I think that that kind of identity work, informing research, um, informing scholarship, I think that's where I've kind of brought that all together into kind of my career aspirations as well. As you say, in terms of supporting your, your identity or different parts of your identity, how do you maintain a connection to, to country when you're not on country physically? So my connection back to community is very much rooted in continuing important relationships within my community. I haven't discontinued any relationship that can be salvaged. And I think it's really important to anchor back into those cultural ways of being and doing where our kinship networks are our first and foremost responsibility. And living off of country in particular is quite challenging, but it is something that I think, you know, comes into my social media work where I can see that social media does play a significant role in keeping us connected to country when we're no longer physically present. This has, you know, informed my current PhD work, which, is, which was highlighted by Professor Carlson last week on this very program. And on social media, for example, being connected to land means sharing photos, keeping in contact, but also existing within the community um, through community organisations who exist now online. And I think what, is what has been really important for me to maintain my identity is to have a career that allows me to maintain that identity. So being within the Indigenous Studies Department and being amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the working environment has enabled and encouraged me to reflect on what country is and how I still play a role in these vast and complex networks of people negotiating relationships with sovereign spaces outside of my own. And this means acknowledging Indigenous lands, sovereign lands um, in which I work, in which I live, and building upon those connections. It, it helps me to sustain my own sense of belonging, I suppose. Mm. And I guess to finish off focusing on your current work that you're doing now. So currently you're at Macquarie University and you've been teaching a course on Indigenous queer studies. What has been the, the reception to, to that course? And by teaching it, has it shifted your own understanding of queer Indigenous studies at all? Absolutely. We have finished up the first semester. So we fully delivered the first iteration of the course, which is ABST 1030, Introduction to Queer Indigenous Studies. And, you know, as with other educators during this period, we have contended with, you know, a lot of challenges of, of COVID. But I think we have done um, unsurprisingly well, considering that we are such a tech-savvy group. So navigating teaching, transitioning from face-to-face -to, -face to online has been a challenge, but not something that is beyond us. And I think that there has been a persistently positive response to the introduction, introductory course, despite some of the challenges that we face this semester. 
through our student enrollments, as well as the interest, such amazing interest in our recent Pride event, Pride event online, which had well over 150 people attending um, from across Australia. And doing Queer Indigenous Studies and teaching at are two very different experiences from, you know, my kind of initial reflections of this whole semester. This is the first time I've ever had the opportunity to open up discussions that are unique to the field of study to students who, who are new to these kind of multidisciplinary spaces. It's also a significant amount of work to lay the groundworks and frameworks that inform the space of Queer Indigenous Studies to catch students up on important issues to both queer and Indigenous peoples, and on top of that, queer Indigenous perspectives and critique. So all of this work, all of that undertaking um, has taught me a lot of things, things that I will definitely carry over to the next delivery, but I couldn't have done it without the amazing work of my Indigenous Studies Department, as well as my guest lecturers who spoke on such a such an expansive range of topics that covered queer Indigenous literature, intersex, sex work, um, and some really challenging and critical topics. So we are continuing into the next semester with another new uh, queer Indigenous course focusing on more international explorations of queer Indigenous identities available to all students enrolled across the country who can look at this through OUA, Open Universities Australia. An introduction to queer Indigenous studies will come about again in session one next year. So I'm looking forward to bringing that back, getting a new batch of students and really giving life to this space. I think that for the last semester, a lot of it has been experimental because it is the first first of its kind in Australia, if not the Southern Hemisphere. And it's something that we're very proud of at Macquarie University. Mm, uh, absolutely. I was uh, reading the, the programs and I was thinking, damn, I really wish I was um, being able to study the course. But it's great that it's on Open Universities Australia. And as you say, once the, the sort of the second subject has, has been through, it'd be great to have a further discussion about the kinds of discussions that have been happening inside the classes. It's such an interesting space and I'm happy to open that up for people through online, especially those who are finding themselves, who want to um, investigate all of these complexities around identities in a safer way, can do so. So all of those considerations are things that we are moving through in this new kind of um, space. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's really great to hear. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your work and also sharing some of the exciting uh, stories and events that are starting to, to take place. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, being able to share this is always a joy. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And that was an interview with Andrew Farrell, who is an Indigenous Early Career Academic Fellow in the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University.
So this week on Tram Thoughts came in a very quiet moment the other day. I'm going to label it a web 2.0 moment I had the other day where I was buying my or ordering my partner's birthday gift online and having a little bit of research, we were buying a phone case and the ad that I received across all platforms after one Google search, uh, we're talking social media, search engine, YouTube, news sites, was this one phone case. So from one Google, like one link or one Google click, I was suddenly saturated <laughs> with this one phone case product. And I mean, this has happened quite a few times I've noted over the last few years. You know, this is very similar to the time that my friend's family were discussing buying a couch and their Alexi in the corner of the kitchen basically picked up on it. And for the next few weeks, all of them were advertised purely couches on every news site that they went onto. Or the time that YouTube marketed me pregnancy tests because I had, at the time, undiagnosed glandular fever, which have, the very, which have very similar symptoms of early stage pregnancy. Now, these all sound like some very weird, you know, conspiratorial sort of, you know, links. And that put me on to algorithms, which are the little ones and zeros controlling what content is prioritized for us as online users. Now, just catching up what algorithms are. Algorithms are a process or set of rules that can be followed in kind of calculations or other problem-solving operations and are used very much so within computers. So these are, this is the programming behind whatever digital content you're interacting with, which creates, you know, prioritizes certain content or, or curates what you're seeing on the screen. Basically coding, <laughs> fancy coding for <laughs> what we can say. Now algorithms have been used throughout history, but more so they're being increasingly adopted by the web 2.0, which begs the question, how much power are we giving these rules, these sets of rules or coding, um, how much power are we giving them as a society to calibrate and, you know, shape what we interact with online and off? So firstly, Rob, I was wondering if you've had one of these like web 2.0 moments, um, whether it's happened to you, have you ever kind of had something, you know, maybe you're looking something up online and suddenly become blocked up your newsfeed? And question, were you, were kinda, were you happy about it or were you a little bit freaked out? I mean, I've had the sort of the standard where you research one product and then, as you say, you're kind of saturated within it. And that's almost kind of expected now when I search mm. something, which is more Absolutely. or less why when I, when I am looking to, to purchase things, I search incognito so I don't get saturated with that. Um, I guess... In weirdly, there's been one time which I really remember, which actually was really useful. Was I was looking at buying a certain product, and because I was googling it a lot, I then got a notification when it was on sale, which was actually really useful in that instance. Creepy because it obviously detected that I was interested in this certain product and then gave me a specific notification, but useful at the same time. But the the thing that I find really interesting is like I've had many conversations with friends of this idea that our phones are listening in on us. Mm -hmm. And I read an article that the reason that effect takes place is because it assumes that let's say person A, so let's say you and I meet up. So let's say, even though we're not, we're in, we're in coronavirus time, so we're not obviously, but let's say I've been at home and I've been researching pot plants, for example. I just mm -hmm. really want another pot plant for my house. And so I've been Googling all about that. It then assumes that when I meet you, that because I've been recently searching that, that I will talk to you about that. So then what will happen? Mm. It's kind of like when little ants like cross their antennas when they're walking past each other to send chemical signals. It's almost like our phones recognize we're in the same place 
And then now you will start to get ads about the same things that I've been Googling, which gives the illusion that our phones have been listening, but it's more likely clued on that we've met. I have an interest in plants. Maybe you have somewhat of a registered interest in plants and then it transfers across. So that's really interesting because it has the effect that it's listening, but actually it's more just a very, very clever system, which is mm. that effect. So there's more of the kind of experiences that I've had. Well, it, it's interesting. What, what I found really interesting about that is the fact that we all have that sort of situation where it was like, oh, this is creepy, but useful. Because you're like nine times out of 10, algorithms kind of show you material that you're like, oh yeah, I have been kind of interested in that. Or, or it, it, it shapes the content to stuff that you potentially do have an interest for. And this is part of algorithms charm is it really does help um, curate your online you know, the online content that you're giving to shape your interests. Um, I think the one that creeped me out the most was the, the pregnancy one, the one where I was like, it was an ad for a pregnancy test. And I got really curious, and this is what kind of led to a deeper dive into how algor algorithms do operate, into, I suppose, what had made the algorithm decide that I was part of that demographic or, you know, experiencing that sort of a situation. So jumping into, I suppose, algorithms online, it's not just advertising. Advertising is the one that we all immediately think of, but algorithms really do create what we are presented with in our infosphere, whether it's consumption of news, social media, or search engine results. It's all the information we have. And how this is decided through algorithms, you know, clever process, as you said, Rob, is a analysis of our digital footprint. So a algorithm will take into mind our online habits of the user. So for example, when we're online, for how long we're online, our consumption patterns, what platforms we tend to spend what time on. It'll also take in mind our interests, you know, what links we're clicking through and what content we're consuming and potentially what future content we might want to consume off of that back. And as you said, cross-pollination between friends and tight-knit community. And then it also looks at things like the technology we're using. What sort of uh, tech are we using? What sort of screen are we looking at? What's the IP, location, and all those sorts of stuff. And what does that suggest about the individual? For example... Is it, you know, a kind of an older model computer or something like that? Or is it something new like a phone or something like that? That looks, that, that very much shows potentially what age or location or demographic the user is. And it takes all these sorts of parts of our online behavior, conscious and subconscious, and kind of creates this online profile for us. Which, again, as you said, can have, well, it can have its benefits. For example, on YouTube, I have now got a very good algorithm giving me some fantastic banger playlists. However, it's also terrifying because what happens is we start to get content that feeds into, feeds into our predisposed interests or, or habits and kind of can really build them, can really encourage a certain maybe angle or focus where, which can be very highly artificial. So the thing I'm kind of jumping to here is Elia Prazer and his speech about filter bubbles. So Elia is an, Elia is an activist in America looking at how media and technology interact under democracies. And one of the big pink points he kind of highlighted around algorithms was the fact that a lot of users online are having this extraordinarily curated infosphere delivered to them, which traps them in a bubble effectively of information that is predisposed towards them. And that kind of feeds into things like cognitive, dis uh, cognitive bias and things like that. It, it reinforces beliefs. Further than that, he actually proved that these bubbles tended not only to be just echo chambers reinforcing your beliefs, but also tended to move people to the extremes. So algorithms would promote content, which incrementally moved an individual to more and more extreme sensationalist sort of 
viewpoints uh, because it was like seeking clickbait. It was kind of, you know, it was desensitizing you with this news that you've already read and going, okay, well, if you like that, you might like this, which is, you know, the volume turned up just a little bit. And his whole argument was really fascinating because it was talking about how we as online consumers have become trapped, as I said, in these echo chambers and in these incredibly divisive or radicalized spaces or, or opinions. Rob, I was wondering, do you have any interaction with maybe filter bubbles, this filter bubble theory or, or this happening in your own perspective with your own newsfeed? I mean, I'm sure it happens and I'm sure I've been influenced in ways that maybe I can't articulate. But I mean, obviously, the, the kind of content that I get through, because I have, a, I have a, a phone which provides a little stream of recommended articles per day. And very much it's pretty influenced by what I've been looking in the past week, the past month, and generally what my mm. core interests are. Um, so I think probably the scary thing is that I have been nudged in ways that I haven't really perhaps been acutely aware of yet. And maybe I won't be acutely aware of for a, a while until I notice the sort of ongoing effects of that. But it does, uh, the whole conversation, it reminds me of a really excellent podcast I had been listening to recently called Rabbit Hole, which talks about someone's experience of being a fairly sort of middle political spectrum who then uh, got sort of, uh, for, I guess, in a sense, radicalized by YouTube videos. So he would mm -hmm. watch the videos and then he got more and more pushed to the right. And then somehow, some, I can't remember the exact details, but at some point the, the YouTube algorithm changed and he got recommended this video, which is by someone more in the far left. And then all of a sudden, then he swayed to that kind of filter bubble. And the way he kind of moved between the two was really interesting. Um, and sort of showing how easily someone can be, uh, their opinions can be changed by the content that's coming through to them rather than just their former experiences and their former background. So I thought that's a really interesting insight into how effective and how manipulative these algorithms can be. Mm. And this was actually found um, a few years ago, an investigation by The Observer, which is an American paper, found that Google searches engine in fact, actually predominantly favoured like conservative right-wing and we're talking radical conservative right-wing perspectives a lot of the time and would promote that content over what we'd traditionally call maybe more left content. Uh, and this was really fascinating because, I mean, Google responded by kind of checking its algorithm and trying to remove certain phrases and certain, you know, intolerant views from its like predictive text and things like that uh but it was a point of like yeah we're being presented with information that can sometimes be quite radical that, that can radicalize us and as you said to these differing perspectives and this is all part of the filter bubble and this is all part of algorithms because algorithms don't have that human element of like you know oh have a diverse amount of information it's very much okay this pattern works we will continue with this pattern mm. well i guess in some ways really algorithms are a further it's kind of like when you when you look at history obviously the history that is told is selective based on as the famous quote goes you know those who win tells history mm. in some ways this is really just a digitalized version of that of the kind of content that gets presented to you the kind of content that is persuasive is is what is accessible and what is interesting quote unquote to to a broader population Absolutely. And I mean, it's becoming more relevant than ever because whilst we also, we interact with algorithms a lot on online spaces and they can sometimes be very obvious in online spaces, sometimes not, sometimes they're very, very invisible. Um, online algorithms are increasingly being used as well for offline systems. So the um, academic Monica Sada problematized algorithms a bit further and demonstrated how there's an increasing set of issues that we need to be aware of when using, interacting and thinking about algorithms. 
The first one she wanted to say is algorithms, first off, cannot match reality. As you've said just then, it's an incredibly censored uh, curation. And it's important to remember that because as much as AI tech heads have come out and kind of advertised algorithms as these, these really, you know, coded in with humanity and, and really ethical creations, um, there's a huge disparity between systems and real life. Yeah. The second thing's, uh, secondly, her main point was that she brought out was algorithms are not fair and they're not blind. They're a reflector of, of their maker. So we don't, there's nothing like the perfect al algorithm, which is tolerant and or, or, or blind, I suppose is a better term for it. They're reflective of the people who make them. And a lot of these people are people in, you know, um, Silicon Valley sort of thing. I was going to say, it's actually, there was a, there was a great uh, story on this. I think it was about a year or two ago where there was a major tech company that in, in a process to try and filter through all the CVs that were coming in, they thought the people that we want to employ, uh, we want them to be like the people who are already here. And so they fed through all the CVs of the existing employees and they found that then all the CVs that will sort of get through the first round or two of filtering were essentially mm. white males who had gone to a certain set of schools who had a certain set of GPAs, but then also, so those were the positive triggers, but then the negative sort of triggers were things saying like words like netball or words more associated with what uh, women had on their CVs. And so had a kind of self-filtering within that, obviously a very unintended consequence, but really, really damaging. I think this is one of the cases where something, as I said, like a, an invisible algorithm has like a very, like a very visual effect or you like, you can really see it in working when you see the results. Another example, let me phrase that better. And another example of like, for example, this racism uh, program embedded within the algorithm is an investigation which found that Uber appeared to be offering better services in areas of Washington DC for, with more white people. So this was kind of looking at like how, algorithms were you know mapping out washington dc and it was finding that it was favoring certain suburbs or certain areas over others where this has really come into some massive controversy recently is with the u.s system compass which is c-o-m-p-a-s which helps provide decision support to help parole boards decide whether prisoners should be released early uh, through calculating the likelihood of recidivism. Uh, these, the compass is also known to help with things like risk assessment and basically taking somebody's past experiences as a convicted criminal and figuring out, you know, what, as I said, what threat they pose to the community or what level of risk they are. Now, while the algorithm does not use race as an explicit variable, um, Monica really points out that it, the algorithm has it embedded within it or systemic racism is embedded within the algorithm as it uses variables such um, that's shaped by police and judicial biases on the grounds. So for example, applicants were asked a range of questions around the interactions with the justice system, the first age of which they came in contact with the police and whether family or friends had been previously incarcerated. Now, obviously we've just seen the Black Lives Movement yet again remind us that the systemic racism is been the basis for a huge criminalization of the African-American populations, right? So Compass within effect in America has some really, really significant consequences, I suppose, where it really does embed the systemic racism. I think something actually that's really interesting in all of this is that algorithms have the potential actually to be quite exposing. So with the case you've been saying, well, that we both of us have been talking about how it reveals sort of systemic flaws in the system. And let's say we go back to the example I mentioned of the, the, the tech company that had used the CV mm. filter. On condition that there is a, 
very significant reflection on what is being put out of the algorithms. Mm. It could actually be used as a way to sort of reveal unconscious bias or other sort of inbuilt sort of tendencies within people. Because, for example, mm. I guess that example could say, actually, we have issues with how we hire. Because if they're just simply automating a process that they would do by human, that is exposing yeah. that they have these inbuilt filters and tendencies. So it, depending how it is processed, how the data and the outputs are used, it could actually have a positive effect of revealing the, the biases that we have, but that's on a lot of conditions. Absolutely. And this is the point that Monica makes. She says, look, algorithms can be really fantastic, but it's how we view this tool. So do we view this tool as like, the a, a massive influence on our decisions well in the case of compass we can't because you know it, it has got that systemic racism built in and a, a re, an investigation found that like a whole bunch of black defendants were much more likely to be falsely flagged as future criminals at almost twice the rate of white defendants mm. and white defendants were also mislabeled at low risk right more so than black defendants so it was pretty clear that in effect it was creating discrimination and the problem was the justice system in America had put so much weight in the authority of the algorithm that it was creating these really unfair judgments. So you're right, as a tool, it's got a really great ability to reveal things. It's got a really great thing to like potentially guide or point out points of, you know, discrepancy or disparity. It's also really dangerous when I suppose given all the power. Being said though, I did want to touch on this idea of like, you know, not just demonizing algorithms to hell. Um, algorithms have also been used to create justice in America. For example, in the wrongful imprisonment of Lydell Grant in Texas, who was in prison nine years until an algorithm actually um, led authorities to a new suspect. Now, of course, that's one case against Compass's, you know, thousands of wrongful convictions or wrongful, wrongful assessments, I should say. But that was an interesting case where algorithms were actually beneficial to the justice system and releasing an innocent man. This, I suppose where it comes back to for Australia is the fact that increasingly also Australia's political system are starting to put a lot more weight in the use of algorithms. So there's at least 20 separate parts of Australian law that allow governments to give computers the power to make decisions. And the biggest problem with this is the government's been very, trans, very shady and non-transparent about what exactly these decisions are. So the ABC did a few little like looks into this, I, I suppose, in, over the years and found that, for example, there are algorithms that can make decisions over things like the Social Security Act or the Migration Act or Paid Parental Leave Act and, and big policy pieces like this. And there's small bureaucratic, you know, algorithms can make a decision here or here or here or here. They're minutiae. But what implication does it have for the individual? In one case, it could be really fantastic. Things like, you know, entering back into Australia after 24 hours of flights, you can usually get through on the passport scanners and a computer algorithm deciding that you're safe, you know? that, you, that you're, you're a low risk. Alternatively, what we've seen happen in like our punitive welfare system is that some of these algorithms have led to catastrophic uh, human costs, where, for example, when you're reporting a fortnightly income to Centrelink, the decision about how much money ends up in your account is ultimately made by a computer, not a human. And as we know, there are so many, there are so many unique things to a person's case that it, it's not necessarily okay to leave that complex decision up to pattern recognition software. Um, we especially saw this with what's really been taking the media recently, which is RoboDebt, as well as um, other welfare systems such as Parents Next or CDP, 
which have recently come under huge amounts of fire for the fact that it was it, their algorithms ticking away in the background, either removing people's payments or sending them these debt notices based off an algorithm that went basically unchecked. Or in the case of Parents Next or CDP, there are human complaints. You know, people said, look, my payment's been suspended for an unfair reason. And because it was an algorithm, not a human at the other end, it wasn't as easily fixed. You know, in Parents Next, it was found something like 50% of people who were taken off Parents Next were taken off for clerical or administrative errors, for errors where the computer couldn't quite recognize the, the, the human issue. So coming into this, there's been a few interesting like emerging, like emerging theories, the first of which is an algorithmic democracy. So some academics have argued that algorithms are starting to become such an over-consuming part of our lives that we're no longer a representative democracy, we're an algorithmic democracy. And their argument bases itself in the idea that, look, the media content and the stuff that we, the, the, the stuff that we have digitally, that's all fed by an algorithm. It's all what best, uh, what, what best works for the individual. And then they then argue that seeing this algorithms placed in our political systems and our justice systems, um, you know, in our, in our corporate systems, you know, whatever's happening in Uber in America is definitely happening over here. We have the same race sort of issues. Uh, they, they, they argue that basically we're living in an algorithmic democracy and we've got to be really aware and terrified of how much power we are giving algorithms. The other algorithm theory I thought I'd bring up with you, Rob, before I get your concluding thoughts, is the uh, theory of labor, which has argued that as a tool, algorithms are garnering more power. So one article I read was framing algorithms as the new, as the new labor force. You know, their object is to collect digital content, digital footprints, and metadata. Their instruments, they can do this with us, social networks, digital platforms, cookies, I suppose we'd all think of. And their product is this online profile, this, these patterns recognition, these predictions, which all create this new product and stuff which can be, without kind of being recognized as labor, our location, our inputs, all of our interaction with online platforms become turned into economic value and turned into this product that is outside of our control. So those are the two, the two kind of different ideas, I suppose, swirling around, well, those, yeah, those are two ideas swirling around the algorithms right now. I, I kind of wanted to get your concluding thoughts with those sorts of things. Are you comfortable with algorithms doing this work for you, um, whether it is in the media, media consumption or, or in the political system? Are there any concerns you have with this? Uh, or where do you think you draw the line with them? Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky topic because, I mean, I think it would almost be impossible to run our society and systems without algorithms today. I think the scale of populations, the scale of complexity, it would almost be impossible. Mm. I guess it's just kind of, it's really reflecting on where are the appropriate places to, to have algorithms making those decisions. And maybe there needs to be a greater assessment or, or a greater recognition of what is the potential risk versus the potential benefits of automating a certain system? So for example, with RoboDebt, obviously that had significant repercussions on people's, uh, I guess, mental health, their, their sort of understanding of, you know, feeling guilt if they felt like they'd be on, or, you know, maybe they, whatever the experiences were that they had, obviously had huge ramifications and have been found out to, to be unfairly placed on so many people. So maybe that, that's obviously an example where, the use of an algorithm there, the, the risk was so significant that I guess it's questionable, did it have a good benefit? And so I guess that's the, the, the thing that I worry about and wonder about is, is 
what's the the rationale behind where algorithms are being used? Are they being used in things that are just really monotonous things that are low risk but need to get done and just need to be ramped up quickly? Or is it being used in things that perhaps are also monotonous but have a potential for a really high risk? And so I think that kind of risk assessment needs to be made more transparent about how it's being used. That would be my main concern and comment, I would say. Yeah, I, I suppose with me, I, you make a great point, which is the fact that algorithms are a tool that we have used, you know, throughout, again, throughout history and seeing it on the online world, seeing it on a kind of these automated systems, it, a lot of them make a lot of sense and a lot of them are just part of process. So I suppose it's it's how much power are we giving a tool that doesn't, like tools don't have directions, they don't have ethics they don't have those sorts of things they just follow orders basically (laughs) how much power how much autonomy are we giving these tools and where does that lead us to so i suppose yeah thank you for jumping into algorithms today so it is it is an expansive topic so i appreciate getting your thoughts yeah no and and once you start looping in ai it becomes a whole other whole other discussion in itself oh i i kept that one out of this conversation i was like (laughs) it's like oh this could be 200 words or this could be a a whole thesis (laughs) we'll have to touch on that in future you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am visit the 3cr website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live If you care for a friend or someone in your family with disability, a medical condition, or who is elderly, Carer Gateway can help you get free support. Carer Gateway has lots of services to help carers. There's counselling, financial and peer support, and online courses that you can do at your own pace. They also have respite services to help you look after the person you care for while you take a break. Call Carer Gateway on 1800 422 737 or visit the website carergateway.gov.au. A 3CR supporter. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. You're the right guy with your boyish charm and your deep brown eyes and your crooked smile. You pull me in and out, there's no way out now I'm fluttering in
The next interview follows on from a conversation held by the Australian Institute looking into the Aboriginal-led health response to the coronavirus. I have Tracy, the Chief Executive Officer at Darabal Yerrigan Health Service in WA to discuss COVID-19 and a community response. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. Oh, good afternoon, sorry. Good afternoon. No, that was me. <laughs> um, so starting off, COVID-19 has been a bit of a blur. It was all so sudden and community health responses have had to be rapid. Could you speak to us a bit about how your organisation changed overnight to meet the demands of the virus? Yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, across, the, across the country, there's 143 Aboriginal community-controlled health services. We were really fortunate, I think, to be part of a large, a large network um, that were, we were able to leverage a lot of the leadership um, from Nacho um, and also our, um, our peaks you know, across, the, across the states and, and, um, and territory. Um, you know, as, um, as everyone will know, it was an unprecedented you know, pandemic. Um, we were really proud to uh, enable an Aboriginal-led led response um, through the support of our peak body, which is Aqua. And we developed a methodical, culturally responsive, um, rapid response plan. Mm -hmm. um, that was really um, crafted around keeping, keeping our mob safe. And in that, in, um, we had to rapidly redesign a lot of our health services um, that encompassed redesigning our clinics to conform to the social distancing and pre-entry screening um, from our AHPs, which meant that um, a lot of our um, people weren't allowed inside our clinics unless they were, they were screened. Um, so they had their temperatures taken and there, there were just some standard, standard tests. We also um, enabled an appointment system because we could only have so many clients um, in, our, in our clinics. Mm -hmm. We mobilised telehealth and phone contact services and telemedicine, which also just enabled um, more of our vulnerable clients. We really didn't want to have them out at the peak of the pandemic. And so we, were, we enabled telehealth services and um, also we had arrangements with um, our pharmacy providers um, where they did the telemedicine where the prescription got sent straight from the GP straight to the, um, the pharmacy. Some pharmacies had home delivery services, so they would deliver the, um, the medicine straight to, the, uh, to our clients. Or we also had, we mobilised a welfare support team that would also provide, pick up those medicines and also take them um, to, the, um, to the homes of our, our, our most vulnerable. Um, health hygiene was um, mobilised across you know, all, of our, all of our clinics and, and services. Uh, constant messaging um, through Facebook, Noongar, Noongar Radio. Um, mm. The health literacy, you know, was um, absolutely remarkable, you know, just putting it through a culturally responsive um, message um, forum that really did, um, I think, play a huge part in informing, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of our mob. Uh, we suspended all non-essential, you know, health services. No, none of our staff were stood down. Um, those who were employed in non-essential services were redeployed. Uh, oh, wow. We enabled COVID paid leave, you know, mm -hmm. for because we were also really worried um, that some of our um, of our mob of our staff may come in with some symptoms, but mm -hmm. wouldn't want to take because they may not have had leave. So we just enabled paid leave to enable them to, um, if they did have the symptoms, to go and get the the testings or if anyone in their family had any of those symptoms too. And um, I, something I wanted to just, sorry, just something I wanted to pick up on there is um, a lot of your organisation outreach has been through social media and as you mentioned, radio. What do you think the significance was within the messaging of the crisis? Because I suppose what we heard on a more of a federal level is the fact that, you know, the government to start off with COVID was qu quite mixed messaging. 
So messaging became this huge issue that we had to get right. And I was wondering how you organize, like what, what approach did your organization take to it and the significance of it? And I think, it, again, it was really through the, through the sector. Um, mm. our, our peak body, um, Aqua, have done some fantastic um, communications that across all of our Aboriginal community control and health services, we, we utilised that to ensure there was consistent, 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 simple, culturally safe messaging applied. You know, it was really succinct, it was really basic, but it got the really important message across. Absolutely. And I mean, COVID-19 has been such a scary and distressing change in all of our lives. Uh, but I, I suppose, how did you address the fear within the community? Um, and, and to make sure that there was that reassurance and there was that support for the people you look after? Um, it was upskilling a lot of our, our workforce, um, and particularly those who were part of the welfare support teams. We mm-hmm. mobilised a welfare support team. We also um, redeployed a lot of our Aboriginal liaison, Aboriginal engagement officers to also play a lot of that leading role and being the interface um, between, you know, the health service and also the clients and just breaking down some of those really important messages about social distancing, about this virus, this virus Mm. that's that's out there. It's it's deadly, you know, Um, it's, um, you know, if we don't get on top of it. Top, top of it early, it can potentially um, make people really sick and, can, you know, people have died from it. And I think once you start, you know, talking about some of the, um, the death and the really um, uh, serious risks involved, it mm. does really take people, um, you know, it enables them to take it more seriously. And we all, we know, you know, what the comorbidities are of, um, of our mob. Um, and we knew that our mob were one of the highest risk factors. So just kind of like breaking that down into really simple, simple language, you know, I feel has been really powerful, you know, as a um, getting that health literacy across to, across to our mob. Mm. And something I thought that was absolutely fantastic uh, that Francine, your chairperson mentioned in this um, larger discussion with the Australian Institute was the use of clinical huddles and counselling and that sort of really responsive checking in debrief culture, I suppose. And could you explain why this was used and kind of, uh, I suppose, responding to a sustained crisis, that checking in with people? I think, um, I mean, it certainly was a different way of Durbel to be working, you know, particularly mm-hmm. when we redeployed um, a number of our staff to work from home. Um, those who could work from home, particularly the administrative staff, plus also um, we've got quite a large workforce that have um, also health vulnerabilities, so we needed to protect them, and so we offered them to work from home. It was really overwhelming, mm. you know, for, for staff. Um, so we certainly wanted to make sure that they had the therapeutic, you know, support uh, so not only were there supervisors checking in, but we also had our counselling team that was um, checking in with them and also enabling, you know, telehealth um, counselling support services, you know, for our staff. So the daily huddles were a really important communication forum, particularly at the, um, as things were evolving, you know, mm. daily, to actually share across, you know, all of our, with all of our clinics what was, what was happening, what our response was, if there was any modification to our, um, our, model, to our model of care. Um, you know, and then we also had under our own durable pandemic plan, uh, we had a bi, um, bi-weekly um, pandemic management team um, meeting that included the uh, clinical leads from all of our four sites, plus uh, the uh, full executive, executive management. And that, again, would just go through any of the issues that were, were happening across any of our clinics, anything that we really needed to, to tighten up on, anything that we may not have considered. 
Um, and then also just to share a lot of the other information that was coming through, you know, from the sector. So we really did have a really informed uh, workforce to, you know, best support um, continuity of care across, you know, our, um, our services. One of the things I think Derbal can be, you know, incredibly um, um, proud of, mm-hmm. that it did enable continuity, you know, of care. You know, it was a different way, you know, of working. But throughout, um, you know, when a, um, around the 14th of March, we were, still, we were seeing, you know, 205 telehealth consults. Mm. Um, we were providing um, outreach support to 50 vulnerable clients. Um, you know, if, when we were taking services, you know, to our, to, to our people, we were, you know, enabling the welfare you know, support team. And that was really through a high, highly functional Aboriginal primary health care service that was trusted and respected, you know, from the, from the community. Um, and again, it is, you know, it wasn't something Durbel did, did alone. You know, we had incredible support from the, um, from the sector, mm-hmm. but it, it is a really um, proud, you know, Aboriginal community controlled um, led service that was from from our board, also um, we have an Aboriginal staff advisory committee that also informed, you know, the plan to making sure along the way that um, yes, it was a it was a pandemic, but we still wanted to make sure that we'll be culturally responsive, you know, in our in our response um, plan. Um, also, we ensured that you know our staff were absolutely protected. They were also our, our number one priority. Where we also had scrubs that were provided to all of our clinical staff. You know, there were some, of course, uh, rightly so, worrying that, you know, should we have had an infected, you know, client come through um, mm. and people came in their own clothes. So we had scrubs that were, you know, um, uh, dry cleaned, you know, every day. So it meant that, you know, if there was, you know, fortunately there hasn't been um, any infection that they weren't taking at home, you know, um, to, their, to their families. And I think that's... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go <laughs> I was going to say, I think that's an astounding resourcing because I know here in Victoria, um, we, we, were having, we were having to make scrubs for hospital users because we were just running out and stuff like that. So it's amazing that the health service was able to sustain itself and build that capacity. Um, I just wanted to quickly ask you, you know, coming out of COVID, do you think there are some lessons we can learn from the crisis in the way that um, Darable, but also we deliver just more generally, we deliver health, uh, for example, like using telehealth or visiting people and patients at home and these sorts of practices? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. There certainly has been some unintended, you know, consequences, like the appointment system. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been, my understanding, a bit of a struggle to try and get the, um, the appointment system mobilised across Durbel, mm. whereas the, um, this pandemic has really, you know, um, enabled that and um, many of our clients are now, you know, embracing that. Mm-hmm. Um, telehealth, we really do hope the government, you know, takes a lot of the evidence um, from this um, you know, pandemic that, you know, Aboriginal people do want telehealth and it has been um, a really popular um, model of care. And I think it goes to show, you know, how very quickly, you know, a, um, a plan can be, can be mobilised mm. without, you know, putting the politics aside. I just don't think um, there was time, you know, for any of the usual, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, the, the politics, you know, playing, playing a part. Yeah. We just had to, you know, all get in, you know, and do some really sensible um, decision making. Mm-hmm. And um, it really did, you know, enable a bipartisan, you know, support, you know, across um, government, you know, and also also the community. And I suppose just finally, my last question is, Durable Yerrigan is an independent facility dedicated to Aboriginal health. Um, and I think it's, just looking into its history, it's such an amazing history, but could I get your mind why such an organisation tailored to the care of Indigenous and First Nations people is so essential, both in crisis and times of relatively no- relative normalcy? Um, 
it's an Aboriginal community controlled health service, so it's so it's um, from the empowerment, you know, of the people who kind of like know what um, what the model of care and how they want their services, you know, delivered. Mm -hmm. um, it has great buy-in, great respect from the from the from the local local community, and it is culturally respective and culturally safe, you know, for our mob. So I think, and then just also with the network, you know, having mm -hmm. people like um, our Aunty Pat, Pat Turner from Nacho and and Dawn Casey, and also the incredible leadership from the coalition you know of, of peaks has really has really helped us um, do this incredible work um, you know across the across the sector to keep our keep our mob safe we're not complacent we're not out of it yet um, mm -hmm. and we have to continue to keep these really tight um, measures in place and um, mess, you know with the with the messaging you know and um, and all the controls Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for joining me today and talking a little bit more about Darabal Yerrigan's response to um, to COVID nineteen and yeah, the, the huge success that's had. And I hope I hope in the coming months that it's we start to see a remove a move back to you know away from the current crisis we're in. Excellent. Thank you. It's really important to share this stuff because it is a really proud you know um, community response. It's, I mean, Derbal is one of many, you know, Aboriginal community controlled health mm. services across the country that have done some incredible work to keep our mob safe. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I'll close the recording. And that was Tracy from Durable Health, uh, sorry, Durable Yerrigan Health Service in WA. Um, once I got off the phone, Tracy made the fantastic point that I suppose what really comes forward in this story is the fact that it was a community-led health response that was culturally sensitive and also a rapid reshuffling of methods and procedures and how the organisation operated to make sure it met the needs of its communities. And it's one of those wonderful stories that we get to share because it just shows you how community organisations are so concerned and attentive to the needs of the people.
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we're playing an interview from early this year with Crystal Denapoli. We absolutely loved having her on the show, and so we thought we'd give the interview another play, and it's focusing on Indigenous astronomy. So up next, we've got our next interview. So Crystal Denapoli is a Kulamulroy um, astrophysics student at Monash University who's been researched in the ways in which the love for her culture and her passion for science intersect. Crystal delivers public talks on the topic of Indigenous astronomy, presenting the knowledge which describes the intricate, complex understanding First Nations people have of the night sky and its objects. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, where did your relationship with Indigenous astronomy stem from? So, um, well, first and foremost, um, I do have the interest in being an Indigenous woman, um, but it all did start with my, uh, I guess, my enthusiasm for space. Um, so in my high school, I was really good at maths. Um, it was the topic I enjoyed the most. And um, I ha- used to try and think about like how I could apply that one day. Because mm. I'm like, what... How do people who do maths get jobs? <laughs> what do those jobs look like? Um, and it was when I moved to university, because I'd, I'd realised I'd always had this burning curiosity about the skies. Um, grew up in a country town. We get a very good view of it. Mm. So, yeah, um, sort of started with astrophysics at university. And it was actually after starting to study there that I found out about the link between Indigenous culture in knowledge systems and um, the skies, which seems pretty obvious in retrospect. Mm. Um, but it was something that I wasn't taught specifically. Um, and it seems to be something that's not not the most as common knowledge as it should be, in my opinion. So, mm. And yeah. I mean, through all this, the work and the research that you're doing, what have you found in terms of how Indigenous astronomy helps sort of structure and guide communities? Well, um, I guess like a, a fundament, fundamental concept when it comes to, um, I guess, like Indigenous culture is this idea of, you know, interconnectedness. Everything's like holistic. Um, and so a lot of the information can be, like that you need on the ground can actually be found in the skies. So a lot of these um, stories which detail this science about whatever's happening um, in astronomy over the last tens of thousands of years also will tell you quite a lot that you need to know about your community. So a lot of history lies in the stars, where the stars are used as reference points for important people or um, stories from their uh, histories or um, even just uh, knowing important things about your landscape. So there's stories specific to different communities which are related to stars, which will tell the communities a bit about how their environment's going to change throughout the year. Mm. And so this can relate to their food sources and water sources, and that information, once again, is lying in the stars for them. Mm. And I guess this is a way of sort of encoding scientific information into the knowledge systems that Aboriginal communities have. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's a very interesting um, way of being able to pass along information. Mm. Um, and it's something that looks quite different to, in a way, to people in like a Western society, which is, I think, why it's a little bit hard to understand um, at first. But yeah, with an oral-based culture, um, you have vast wealths of knowledge that you need to be able to encode in some format to be able to pass along. Um, and it's hard for us to imagine, right, without a book, like, how mm. is that possible? Mm. Um, but you can really take, uh, I guess, like, advantage of the human brain's capacity to memorise, which is just incredible. Mm. Um, and also, like, shout out, because there's a book called The Memory Craft by Lynn <laughs> Kelly, which goes into incredible detail about that topic. Um, but so what they do, essentially, is um, an easy way to remember a certain idea or concept is to put it into a a format that we understand and something that's easy to make others understand and to pass along. And so I use the example of if you want to talk about the sun and the moon and you want to talk about the way that they move throughout the year, a good way to represent that is actually to tell a story about a man and a woman, so a sun woman and a moon man. 
And you can talk about the dynamic between them. Um, so whatever movement it is that you're trying to explain, you can represent in some sort of relationship or interaction between those two people. Hmm. And so this becomes a story. And these stories um, you can tell at a you know different layers of complexity, something hmm. sort of simple that kids can grab that you know general idea of, or something that we can really break down with specific descriptions of those interactions, whether it's a dance or some sort of movement. Um, and so these stories, they're easier for us to remember. And it's something that it's sort of hard to misconstrue as well. Mm. And so this is the way that you can pass, encode that information into a different format and then be able to pass that along for generations with more storytellers. Yeah, wonderful. And I imagine this has been going down for hundreds or thousands of generations. Oh, definitely. It's incredible how um, we can use uh, a lot of the information in these stories. And so stories that are still living and stories that we have record of from times of colonization, from a lot of the explorers or invaders, mm. <laughs> however you want to phrase it, um, they, uh, it's, it's, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought, sorry. No, that's no, okay. Are there <laughs> um, any particular yeah. stories that you particularly remember or you, uh, you find really fascinating? Yeah, and sorry, and that, and that was my point. It's just the, um, the, the way that we can use that information actually to, uh, uh, to date these stories back. Mm. So we have geological descriptions and astronomical descriptions, which we can use to pinpoint certain points where these events would have occurred. Right. And so that's how we get those timescales mm. of tens to um, hundreds to thousands of years. Mm. Um, so I ha do have some favourites. Um, a lot of them come down to, I'm, yeah, I, I love when we start to discuss variable stars. So these are stars that change in their brightness over time. I think there's such a beautiful way of being able to represent the way that these ch stars are changing by using this narrative structure. Um, and so there's a Kakatha story which um, actually covers o the constellation like Orion, so Naruna for their group, as well as um, the Pleiades, which is, I think, I'm really bad with pronouncing the word, but I think it's like Eucharilia, mm -hmm. sisters, um, and then a pretty key star, Gambaguda. And it just, it talks about this interaction between those groups of stars, which does pop up in different groups around the world because of the way these stars are grouped. Um, but it's really interesting. They use this concept of fire magic um, to sort of symbolize that sort of when they can summon the magic and when the magic dissipates to describe when that star is, you know, becoming dimmer or brighter again. Mm. Mm. And it's exciting because it's quite topical at the moment. Um, Betelgeuse is one of those stars within Orion that is variable, that is described in that Kakatha story and currently is going into a dimming period, which has everyone, mm. well, okay, <laughs> everyone in the astronomy field a little excited. <laughs> so how long are these kind of periods when it's sort of dimming or it's becoming brighter? Like yeah. what kind of time scale? are we looking at? So um, it definitely varies, but you can have it between just a few days to years at a time. And okay. so Betelgeuse is on the scale of years. Yeah. Um, and as well, the other star that's included in that is a star called Aldebaran, um, which is within the Gambaguda figure. Mm -hmm. um, and so for Betelgeuse, it's a much more consistent um, dimming over time. Um, Gambaguda, it's much more regular. Mm -hmm. And so that's when it's exciting as well, because it's where these stories are described in such a way that we get that from the way those characters are interacting. Mm. It's like, well, why is this Gambaguda's fire magic? Why is that so unreliable in this story? Mm. And when you actually look at the light curves of these objects, it, it lines up perfectly with that irregular, hard-to-predict sort of nature. Yeah, fascinating. That's great. And as a... In addition to, to, to what you're speaking about then, is there any other part of Indigenous astronomy that you'd like to research more into? Yeah, so um, it's, it is on the similar topic. Um, so I am working on um, a bit of research at the moment looking at the Seven Sisters um, in Indigenous uh, oral traditions because of the way that they are described, because we have a similar uh, theme popping up in the way that we have, um, you know, one of the sisters who is constantly described, not just in Australia, but different Indigenous groups around the world and their traditions as well, described to be, uh, you know, dimming in some sort of a way. So, you know, whether that younger sister is hurt or kidnapped and returned or any sort of thing that's befalling her. And it's really interesting that that's a common theme. Um, and when looking at a first glance at 
the Pleiades, we do find that you know there is a variable nature to the stars. Mm. Um, and so that's one thing I need to investigate further to see, is that a likely explanation or is there some other property of the stars that could account for why this is such a common description? Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm excited about. But I know there's other topics which do, like I am, I'm so pumped to see how that research heads. <laughs> Um, which are using things like, because there's so many stories over time, which would um, link up animal behavior to the stars, mm-hmm. um, which is a really great way of being able to essentially like forecast or use as a calendar to sort of predict what's going to happen in your environment. Mm. So figure out what's going to happen with those animals. And what's interesting is quite a lot of these calendars um, are no longer as accurate, which um, which is worth investigating, mm. which I know people are, because it's, it's like, can we tell, we'll see the effects of climate change yeah. through... Aboriginal astro- astronomical traditions. So there's yeah, different areas where it's... And I guess that's kind of interesting the way that climate change can affect these these sort of stories that have been yeah. passed on for you know, hundreds of ge- thousands of generations, mm-hmm. how they're now starting to be very much influenced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, how would you say that sort of a better understanding of Indigenous astronomy can help us sort of start to shape our connection with the landscape today, particularly in the context of changing climate? Yeah, well, I think there's um, a lot of lessons to learn. So one of the things, especially um, at least with like the, the nation of Australia being relatively young, but this land being inhabited for just a crazy timescale, mm-hmm. um, there's so much information about what's actually happened on this land that we don't have access to. But the thing is, we definitely do just as long as we're actually listening to these stories, because a lot of these stories can describe events that have happened over these hundreds to thousands of years ago. And a lot of them is like geological events as well. So we have descriptions of, you know, last sort of like ice age areas, like, you know, 13,000 years ago when Tasmania was last connected, when volcanic eruptions have occurred, um, when meteorite impacts have occurred. So it's a lot of information that we can grab from a historical standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, But as well, it helps us sort of predict for the future. So a very, uh, I guess, like topical point is... um, fire safety with Mm. bushfires um from what i've learned at least from the things that i've read uh bushfires before the 1800s were not common and you can see that by actually looking at the trees themselves Mm. um and apparently a lot of this comes down to those burning off methods and practices which are just fascinating as well by Mm. the way just specific geometrical patterns that they had for knowing when to burn off and how many years between for which areas and how that would keep Mm. a cycle of you know um, available growth, mm, um, mm. but making sure everything remains safe. And I, I think they're incredible practices, and they've, ver- they've been developed very specifically for these lands. Mm. And so I feel like this is the sort of information that where Indigenous astronomy can really help us engaging with those, um, yeah, those uh, uh, knowledge holders, because it's stuff that could really benefit benefit us currently Absolutely. in these sort of dire times. Yeah, <laughs> mm. and really understanding like what the landscape is telling us. Yeah, yeah, really. As it, re- understanding it definitely and especially when it's coming back to those like um the the changing in like animal behaviors those calendars and everything it can really show you just yeah like i essentially like i guess like the trend that we're heading in and perhaps make us think about what we can do to sort of fix that knowing that natural balance that we've had before Mm. Mm. and i guess on that point how can we share this knowledge with the broader australian community yeah so um the first place i would recommend to go is we have a website um, so we have uh, www.aboriginalastronomy.com.au um, and that's just got um, pretty much any bit of information that we've found, any of the research we've done over the years. It's all been chucked up there. Elders profiles, you can search up information based on group if you're interested specifically in Gamilaroi or Wurundjeri um, or instead if you were interested in specifically learning more about stars or learning more about animals or comets or anything like this, you can click via those content as well. Um, and then we also try and do as much community engagement as we possibly can. 
Um, so I know there's a lot of elders working in this space who um, speak quite often. I know Uncle Wayne Thorpe, um, who is a semi-local elder um, <laughs> out in the sort of like Gippsland um, area, but he is an amazing uh, astronomer communicator. Um, so there's quite a lot of events like that going on as well. So, mm. for example, like this weekend's M Pavilion mm. talk that I did as well, trying to just engage <laughs> with as many people as we can. So keep yeah, keep your eyes out. We have socials um, and the website and... Yeah, absolutely. And if we see any events, we'll definitely give them a plug Perfect. on the show. So thank you so much for coming on, Crystal. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. Um, so we're just speaking with Crystal, who's a Camilla Roy astrophysics student at Monash University. Hi. These are weird days. Many of my days are weird days, actually, but these are weirder than most. It can be a bit of a seismic shock to wake to the news of daily tolls here and in other countries. To spend week after week separated from friends and family, hour on hour, of many of us just within our own homes. But through all of this, we are also seeing so much to inspire hope. People are creating incredible networks of mutual aid. Gardens are thriving from all that lockdown attention. We are finding new ways to slow, connect and reflect. Artists are creating, kids are learning differently, and activists are imagining and collaborating on new futures beyond this time. And 3CR is continuing to broadcast throughout this coronavirus remotely. Who knows how long this will have us all locked down, but don't let it get you down. Tune in and love up your community. Stay connected. Work for what has to be a better future ahead. Thanks, CR, for staying steady on the waves.